all of the readings did not prepare me for the journey I'm doing right now, doing an emotional and spiritual and relational archaeological dig on myself. Every layer that I, that I explore, Sam, takes me to a deeper level. It became increasingly clear to me, and my son invited me to go on this journey. He was very crystal clear that I needed help. Of the 87 episodes I have done with incredible friends and experts, I don't think I've ever had the experience that I've had in this episode, which is to experience a bona fide expert in her field showing up just days after going through an intensive program for her own recovery. Kind of caught us off guard at first. What do you make it when somebody tells you, I just got out of a inpatient experience because I'm dealing with some stuff? Well, what I realized through the conversation is this is the perfect example of leadership. There's a path a lot of people go on when they go trying to spread their ideas. The first one becomes being an expert. The second one becomes always having the answer. And to meet someone, Karen Joy Hardwick, to say, I'm still learning. I'm still exploring. I'm still meeting other teachers. I am hungry for more, was a breath of fresh air. Working in the self-help space, it seems like everybody is an expert and everybody has the answer to everything. Karen's approach to life, to continue to learn, showing up here in our studio days after coming out of an intensive inpatient program for her own recovery, blew my socks off. You will not believe the amount of humility and love and care that has gone into Karen's journey of becoming an expert. And my favorite part is at no point did she become too much of an expert to stop learning. You'll find out soon enough that she possesses an incredibly rare quality today in the field of self-help, leadership, and experts in all the fields that we see online. She's somebody who continues to learn and continues to put herself right in the center of being a student and teacher. We were all caught off guard with her admission the moment she walked through the door, and you will be too. We've called this conversation Leading by Doing. Hey, Karen. Hey, Sam. I found out this morning that you came all the way from Montana just to be here. Just to be with you, Sam. And I'm so honored and grateful to have someone next to me who wants to be on this program so much. Oh, I love that. I think that's such a treat. It just means the world to me knowing that you so intentionally got here. I was so excited when my PR team said, we talked to Sam Lamott's team and they want you to be on the podcast. I, I was like, awesome. So we're both excited. Thank you for having me. I have a confession to make, which is I'm criminally underprepared. Normally I have read every single thing you've ever written and I have a plan in my mind. I'm going to be getting to know you the old fashioned way. Okay. <laughs> right here, live. So I was wondering if you would let me do a little grounding and set a container for this episode. So if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes for a second. Mm. Okay. I want you to think about all the work that you've done to get here. The life experiences that brought you here, your work writing this book, The Connected Leader, and what your intention was from it, the personal work that you just got done getting through, which we'll talk about in a bit. And I want you to think about how much you've put in to get to this moment and that we could right now give you the best interview of your life where people could really get the idea of what you're here to do on this planet. And now I want you to make sure that you don't let this unprepared fool get in the way of you giving the best interview of your life. And you make sure that whatever you need to say, you make sure is said while you're here. Okay, welcome to How To Human. Thanks for coming. Okay, that was, that was a lot. All right, so I start the show the same way every single time, but this can be as big or as small of a question as you'd like. But Karen, who are you? I've been thinking about that question. I know you ask your guests that, Sam, so I was thinking about it as a result of knowing that, but I've also been thinking about that a great deal just in my own life. So here's what, here's what comes up for me just real organically. I am first and foremost in human school. I'm a person in human school, which means that for me, Sam, my relationship with God is primary. I am a seeker of questions. I am a person who believes in the healing power of connection. 
and I am absolutely grateful to be the mother of my son. So at this point in my life, that's who I am. And I'm going to follow up with, what are you here to do? At this point in my life, what I'm here to do is to connect with myself in a way that recovers my true self, which means being super honest, rigorously honest about who I am and where I've been and what I'm doing, and inviting other people to be on this journey of connection with me, with themselves, also on a real practical level, help families who are impacted by the disease of addiction look inward and realize that the person they love with the substance use disorder is not the problem, but that the disease is, and that it affects everybody in the family system. And so what are we all going to do about that? Mm. One of the interesting details about your life is you are fresh out of your own treatment program. Mm. They went from, and I love that so much. I'm always doing programs or retreats or things to work on myself. For me, when I set up to do the show, there's a joy in me not needing to be an expert and not needing to have all the answers. And I don't think I'll ever actually have the answers. I don't think many people have answers for the human condition, but maybe like you said, good questions to help you Mm. get started and good company to accompany you on your own journey. Tell us about that. It's it's rare for me, as long as I've been doing this, I've never had a, a guest come on and go, yeah, you know what, I just topped myself off with a treatment program, <laughs> which is a, a 30-day inpatient, like you put your life on pause to give yourself this gift. Yeah, so many things come up when you say that, Sam. You know, I'm... Um... I have my MDiv, which means I went to seminary to be an Episcopal priest, and that wasn't enough, so I went on to get my master's in clinical social work so I could be a psychotherapist. All of the work that I've done on myself and all of the readings did not prepare me for the journey I'm doing right now, which means for me, doing an emotional and spiritual and relational archaeological dig on myself. Every layer that I explore, Sam, takes me to a deeper level. It became increasingly clear to me, and my son invited me to go on this journey. He was very crystal clear that I needed help because I was unconsciously so much of the time responding to life out of this intergenerational trauma I was carrying. You know, I come from a family, my family tree sits in a vat of alcohol, grandparents, parents, and then I made decisions in my adult life choosing to be with people who were also suffering from substance abuse. So yeah, I needed to get super clear about how much shame had played into my inner landscape. And very few people knew this from the outside because from the outside looking in, I looked like I had it together, Mm -hmm. right? And in in some ways I did. So I don't want to diss all of that. In some ways I really did. You had a career and a life and all this stuff. Yeah, so. Yeah, all those things, right? That can also lull us into complacency that we're good, that we've got this. And yet I knew that something was corrosive from the inside out. With the guidance of a friend to whom I'm like super grateful, his name is Adam, I discovered this wonderful program in Florida called The Guest House. They named themselves after Rumi's poem, The Guest House, which is a fabulous poem. Take a look at it. It's about inviting in all the things, all the despair, all the grief, all the hopelessness. These are all guests in our lives, to teach us what we need to know. So I signed myself into the guest house, which is a trauma-based program, and I had ignored or avoided my entire life group therapy, psychodrama, doing anything that I needed to do, like in front of witnesses. Active, right? Active, yeah, Yeah, right. Rather than just cerebral talking. Exactly. One-on-one therapy I was good with. Did it for so very many years. Same. Right? Yep. 
But doing our work in front of other people, like ugly crying for 30 days on the floor, <laughs> you know, right? <laughs> like with people that I hardly know, but that became such an important part of my journey. Yeah, it was just life transforming. You have these experiences. What I think turns them from a powerful experience that was like five years from now, that was nice five years ago, to something that you carry with you prolonged is like hanging on tight to a couple things. Because you won't be able to remember everything that happened in that 30 days. You won't be able to carry everything with you. But what are the, the couple big things where you're like, I hope as long as I live, every time I listen to this interview, I want to be reminded that these are the things I absolutely do not want to forget about myself, who I am, what I'm here to do. You know, you asked me that. I'm, I'm, I'm tearing up because I'm thinking, well, that's a really important question for me to consider. The experience was so profound. There was such healing connection in doing my work while other people were witnessing it. And while I was witnessing their work, I was privileged to hold sacred space for people who were there to heal, like very deeply and in such vulnerable ways. So the two things that I really want to carry with me is the power of self-forgiveness. My son said to me before I went, Mama, he's 20, Mama, go and forgive yourself. And that was really important work for me, Sam, because I um, hold myself responsible for absolutely everything. Yeah. Right? Everything is my fault. What could I have done differently? What could I have changed? What could I have avoided? Everything is about me. You know, like in the 12-step program in one of the recovery communities that I am in, it we talk really powerfully about the three Cs. We didn't cause it. We can't control it and we can't cure it. And I'm like, well, that's good for all you people, but I did cause it, right? Like that's that's my own ego. I did cause it. I can control this and maybe I can cure this. And I had to let go of all of that. The importance of self-forgiveness for me is letting go of what I really am not responsible for, but owning what I really am responsible for. That whole accountability piece, Sam, Owning my stuff, no excuses, closing the escape hatches, being completely accountable for the mistakes I did make. Mm. And how for me, that's the path to real forgiveness is starting with accountability. So I'll stop right there for now. Was there a moment where you felt like I am letting go in a way I've never let go before? Oh man, was there ever Sam? Okay, can you can <laughs> yeah. you take us there? I thought there might be because all right, you've been to divinity school, you've had to do your hours as a therapist, you've had to do all these things. What do you think catalyzed? Like, take us to that moment and then try and tell us like what changed it? Like, what was different this time? Mm. So I will take you to that moment, but my mind is first going to an event that happened about three years ago that was kind of a sense of what the future held for me. So it was a very powerful moment. So it was a preparing kind of a moment. I was in Montana and uh, my son was with me with two of his buddies and we were having this amazing trip and we had spent the day ATVing and hiking and all Montana kind of things. And we got to this beautiful Montana river and two family friends were with us. And the boys climbed up this cliff 30 feet up and were jumping off of it, hooping and hollering and doing all these boy joy things and backflipping off this cliff into this glacier cold river. And I was watching them and it was just sheer joy, Sam, to be there in that moment. And my son said, come on, mom. And I actually thought he meant let's get back on the ATVs. But what he meant was come on up here to the cliff and jump. Whoa. Whoa, right. And I am not a daredevil by any stretch of the imagination, but I found myself crossing this river, like just walking through this river, climbing up the cliff, Sam, on the cliff with my son and his two buddies. And they were cheering me on like, jump, jump. 
And I would go to the edge of the cliff and literally tears would be streaming down my face because there was no way, no way I was ever going to jump. So I'd go to the edge and then I'd sit down and I'd cry and I'd back. And this went on for like 10 minutes. And it was one of these weird moments where the entire world went quiet. And I quietly said to my son, I can't let go. And he said to me, you have to mama. And in that moment, Sam, I found myself in the air, but it wasn't because I jumped. It was because the invisible hands lifted me up. Before I knew it, I was in the water and coming back up and swimming to shore. And I could hear my son say, well, it wasn't pretty mama, but you did it. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Right now, isn't that true with all of our letting go? That we hang on and we grip so tightly and we can't let go. And then something happens where the invisible hands kind of undo our fingers from the death grip. Yeah. That moment for me three years ago prepared me for the next three years, which only got harder and darker in terms of addiction in our lives. So when I went in to treatment at the guest house for recovery from trauma, that's the work I was doing, really letting go of my control and my sense that I was in charge and my super powerful competency, because I can be so competent that it can convince me that I'm okay. And there was this one moment three days before my 30 days was up where one of the therapists said, okay, who, who wants to do some work today? And I raised my hand and I said, I need to do something before I leave here in three days that catalyzes, that just crystally clearly brings me to my knees. And so she said, okay. So she had someone step in as my son and we held this blanket between the two of us. And she said to the young man, no matter what you do, you don't let go. And she had me enact how much I was holding on. And I wound up on the floor crying, primitively grieving. And it was so hard for me, Sam, to let go of that blanket, which would kind of symbolize my letting go in a very loving way. It took me about 15 minutes of tears and crying and screaming to realize that in the letting go of that blanket, I could find a true sense of humility and connection and healing. So yeah, it it was just one of those. and, And one of the fellow guests there who witnessed that said to me it was the most profound thing he had ever seen. Wow. So much is coming up for me. During the jumping story, I just felt like Wow, that's such a cool moment that you and your son got to have together. Maybe there's some work I need to do on my relationship with my mom because I don't think I could get her <laughs> to jump. You know, <laughs> but I was very touched by your guys' relationship. Well, uh, yeah, and that you would do that for your son. It's like I don't think it's a typical mom activity to go jump off a cliff. <laughs> no. uh, that is very cool, and that experience sounds beautiful. And that's, it's similar to the experiences I just came out of, which were all that. They were all physical exercises acted out in the body with other people, strangers, all your fear of like being seen is there and looking silly. And for me, like probably some of the people who were watching you, me being witness to other people being brave and going out on a limb and having breakthroughs is, that's when I committed that's when i said Mm -hmm. okay i'm not leaving here until i get that like i will do whatever it takes until i get that it's so important for us to see other people right yeah and to let them see us which for me was so incredibly hard during this process because i kept thinking to myself i'm so much more comfortable facilitating these kind of groups (laughs) like can i just do that And yet I wanted to make the most of that experience. My son was counting on me and he calls me a badass warrior mom. 
and I was counting on me. Like I really wanted to drop the rock, as we say. I really wanted to come out of that feeling lighter. And for me, being lighter also means being accountable, being accountable and learning about the healing grace in humility. So I dove into the deep end and I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. So it was, yeah, a 30-day messy odyssey that brought me to my knees. Yeah. After going through what I went through, which is not 30 days, boy, that would be wild. It was five 12-hour days. So it was like very intense five chunks. Intensive scenario is where I think the most bang for your buck is, where people have you day after day after day, and they can see you and you get a little bit of rope Mm -hmm. to make mistakes, and then they can pull you back in and you get a little bit more rope. Because I do weekly therapy this year. It's It's an amazing gift I get to give myself. I love it. But the depth that you can get to when they have you for 12 hours is so deep and there's no running away. Like when I get out of therapy, there are sessions that, and I tell my therapists, there are sessions that pay for the next 12, Yeah, you know, because they're so profound, but there are also sessions where you learn something good. And then about two hours later, you're just right back into your mad, your madness. If you're not very intentional, a a week can go by and and then you're getting ready for therapy and you're going, Oh God, I'm, what was I supposed to do? You know, what was was my homework? Right. Right. And some of the, the guys I mentor, I'll be like, Hey, how's your, how's your homework going? And they'll be like, Oh, I'll work on it today. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's been a week. What are you talking about? You'll work on it today. So there is something nice about somebody, you giving someone that extra time with you. Yeah. And to get to do it experientially. I'm looking for group stuff going forward. Like There is a magic there, right? Yeah. I mean, again, as I said before, and we agree on this, I avoided it like the plague, like seriously. And then to- I thought it was for people who couldn't afford one-on-one therapy. <laughs> That's. Li- <laughs> I thought the group stuff was a lesser version. I had no idea the group stuff was so powerful. It's the holy grail. Yeah. Like seriously. Yeah, it's just, it was really hard for me to come to the conclusion that my life could afford me leaving it. How is everything going to continue? Like I have a job and I have a consulting firm and I have stuff and I have a golden retriever and, you know, I have all these things that need my attention or so I thought and nothing needed my attention. I remember calling my office, as was the arrangement, a few times every week, and they'd be like, stop, like, go do you, we're good here. And everything ran so smoothly without me, and it was such a luxury, Sam, to do nothing but focus on me. First time ever in my life where there was nothing else for me to focus on. I didn't have contact with anyone. Now, I called my office a couple of times. I had no phone. Seriously. It was so wonderful to just be that off the grid. Speaking of off the grid, Mm -hmm. tell us about what brought you to Montana. Yeah, my soul. Yeah, it was a soul calling. It was time to be in a place that in and of itself nourishes connection. I go out every day and walk under the shadow of these beautiful mountains. It just helps me to feel so incredibly connected. And it's a special place for my son and I. And it was time for me to leave the bigger city, Atlanta, and to do something bold and brave that on some level didn't make any sense and that on a deeper level made every sense in the world. So tell me about that. Yeah, it's a spiritual thing for me to be out there. What got you out there? The beauty. I loved it out there. We had spent some time out there exploring and just taking it all in. I knew that I needed to be there. It just is difficult to put into words. And I knew that I needed to say goodbye to the things that had represented my life for the last couple of decades and start again have a new beginning. It was a bold move. 
I get, bold, yeah. brave, courageous. You know, I did it on my own. A friend of mine drove across country with me. It felt like we were doing the modern day version of the covered wagon, drove through the badlands of South Dakota and realized, oh my goodness, I am really doing this. I'm not that kind of a person. Like I said before, I'm not a great daredevil or an adventurer. Like I like to like to know where the grocery store is. And when I moved to Montana, I just had to relearn absolutely everything, including how okay I am on my own. Wow. So what's what's on the agenda for this next chapter? So I think what I'm going to do now is really double down on the power of connection as it relates to families who are suffering from addiction. I don't know about you, Sam, but a lot of families that I know who are going through the hellacious process of watching someone that they would literally sell their skin for, and they're watching this person that they would sell their skin for go deeper and deeper into darkness. A lot of families have the mistaken notion that their beloved person is the one with the problem, right? So let's fix the problem. Let's fix this person and we'll all be okay. And there is such a, and so many really profound things are being missed when we have that concept because the whole family is impacted by the disease of addiction, the whole family. And not just impacted by the addiction, many of us have been carrying this intergenerational trauma for generations. And that's what needs to be healed. That's what I'm really pouring my energy in, into is how can we have families go through the process of looking inward, of owning their peace, of doing things differently, not just setting boundaries because Yep, that's absolutely important. But how do we set boundaries from our own sense of deep healing? How do we do that as an invitational way of staying connected? How do families deeply heal from this disease, which, as we both know, is growing day by day all around us? Yeah, addiction being the symptom uh, right, amen. is everywhere. Yes. I, so classical, old school addicts like myself, junkies and alcoholics, we're like the tip of the spear, but it's every single aspect of our lives is being turned into the most stimulating, pleasurable experience Yes, that can possibly be provided, whether it's a, our salad dressings are full of sugar and salt, food addiction, porn addiction, media addiction, addiction to everything. There is no family that isn't being torn apart by the levels of stimulation that we're getting used to. Like if you pull a phone away from everyone in your household, there's going to be some withdrawal period, even somebody who's aware of it. And like, I want to be able to turn my phone off and check out. And there's settings where I can do that. But I'm aware of like, oh, all of these things are fueling this strange stimulation reward response that I don't think we're built for. I don't think we're built for the levels that we're getting bombarded with. And so whether it's like me, alcohol or drugs, which is the the quickest way to the top, but we're getting it through shows. We're getting it through everything is you watch the progression from Twitter to Instagram to TikTok. And it's like, what's happening is it's getting faster. It's yes. getting more fun, more stimulating. And I love stimulation. You know, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but the question is, just because you can jump out of an airplane while eating cheeseburgers and having sex with two people, should you? Like, what is the best way to operate? And I think it is a slightly slower paced, intentional existence. But you tell mm. me about how you plan to I love everything you just said. Love it. And I'm also so pained by it because we're we're being eaten alive by all of these distractions and all of these numbing techniques. And now, in addition to drugs and alcohol, we have all these process addictions, all the ones that you named and many more. One of the scariest parts for me is that so many people are seriously impacted by this and they don't realize it that their lives are slowly unraveling and they're giving their agency away. 
And that's one of the things that I hope to help people understand about addiction is, look, the symptom is just the tip of the iceberg. However it shows up, drugs, alcohol, porn, work, gambling, whatever it is, people are turning to that as the solution because of the what's underneath the waterline. Now, of course, it's not the solution because it causes a hell all of its own, right? A tremendous unraveling of who we truly are. But we have to dive beneath the waterline and look at the self-loathing and the insecurities and the woundedness that we haven't healed. That's what's catapulting us into these quick fixes. What kind of work do you want to be doing? Is it something from the the guest house that you just came part of? That probably is going to inform how you want to approach these. But how do you want to start working through this? Right now, coaching a number of families, spouses, and parents about how they can look inward to figure out their own healing journey as part of um, a member of a family impacted by addiction. It's critically important that we move in that direction. And I'm also very serious about opening a retreat center where family members can go to heal themselves and take the focus off of the person with the active addiction. They're not the problem. The disease is the problem. And it comes for all of us in a variety of ways. So how can the family do their work much more deeply and heal what they need to heal that's underneath their waterline. So I'm really serious about creating an an experience for families that can help to recalibrate the entire system. There's really nothing like that right now devoted to these families. What do you think brings about healing and true recovery? Humility. Go deeper. Surrendering, realizing I did have a part in this. Accountability. Absolutely, Sam. I believed that I was the solution, that my wisdom, that my love, that my experience, that my Amex, that, you know, anything, I could solve it until I had to, I was literally on the ground realizing I am not the solution at all. There's nothing I can do here. So, and I was a really poor boundary holder. Mm. Right? I mean, I loved saying yes because it made people around me happy. But what that did is that just gave the disease more and more power. It was my go-to. It was my addiction in some way. And the other thing that we're learning more and more is that the brains of family members who love someone with an addiction, the brains change. There's an actual restructuring of what goes on in our neurological system, just like with the person with the addiction. Yeah, Their brains change, our brains change. I made people my drug of choice. I talked to someone yesterday who's in a 10-year marriage. Her husband is a binge drinker. It's kind of similar to what you were saying with like, he has crossed every boundary. And so over the years, it's like all of her integrity and boundaries has slowly been withered away and it's like well no wonder you you feel yeah i was like so what's what do you want like what's your vision and she was like i don't know because you can't you can't know when your life surrounds an unreliable person and that you you're no longer building with someone you're now trying to manage you're trying to be a caretaker to someone And so, of course, you don't get to have a vision. Of course, you don't get to have plans because it's all about what this person who's taken the steering wheel is going to do next. Yeah. And so the the people who are in the support roles of the addicts are just as much a part of the dance. The addicts will (laughs) take any available resource available to them because they're in their addiction. And the, the supporters get caught in this cycle of like feeding the addict with all their resources until their shells and then they're resentful. And then now they're these unrecognizable creatures. I became absolutely unrecognizable to myself. Yeah. Absolutely. 
it's such an insidious, nuanced, powerful, complex process that like you said, Sam, when we're in it, we sometimes don't even have the wherewithal or the ability to slow ourselves down enough to reflect. I mean, we know we're in a shit show. We know that without a doubt. We know that there's tsunami of pain coming on a daily basis, sometimes moment by moment. But all we're trying to do is save ourselves and save our loved ones. And sometimes the very things that we think we're doing to save them are really destroying us and them. We're loving people to death. Yeah. Loving people to death. And that's such a hard, difficult thing to accept. That's why when people, like my way of giving advice is very antagonistic for a reason. And so when a friend of mine calls me and he says, hey, I'm thinking about relapsing, I'm thinking about drinking. I say, great, let's go to the bar. I'll buy you your first drink. Generally, they'll go, fuck you. (laughs) And I go, okay. And the reason why is because we have gotten so used to trying to save people. Yes. And thinking that we can save people. But it's like in the gym, if somebody's lifting a weight and you go and you you help lift the weight for them, you're robbing them of the ability to get stronger. The reason why I generally take an antagonistic approach is because it's a totally different direction. Mm-hmm. One is me throwing a blanket, putting my energy on them. The other one is their energy coming out when they go, fuck you. I'm not going to drink. I'm like, well, great. Then do you want to talk about it? You know, because you just told me a second ago you want to drink, but apparently you just want to talk about it. Yeah. How much of our comforting and our wisdom giving and our, oh, no, you can't do that. I'm going to throw myself in front of the bus so that you don't do that actually feeds the disease. The disease then is like this. Oh, good. Now I've got you. Now I've got you right where I want you. I really connect with a term called learned helplessness. Mm. That's my dance right now is overcoming a learned helplessness. My active addiction is to despair, is to caving when things get hard, to melting down and collapsing in weakness. My addiction, I am addicted to being weak when things get tough. For whatever, I mean, it's not for whatever reason, there's a payoff to it. I can't deny that there is a payoff to it. And so I right now, the modality I'm working in with my one-on-one therapist is CBT. Yeah. And it's like going to preschool. For somebody who wants to talk about big abstract ideas, this guy, Robert, wants he doesn't want to talk about big abstract ideas. It can feel weird paying the kind of money you're paying for, for like, all right, let's, let's write a uh, cost-benefit yeah. analysis. And you're like, what? What? No, I want you to talk about how my father abandoning me led to this. Like, ah. That's yeah. that's the other, you know, you can work with that therapist next time. But right now you have me. This is what we do. And so last Monday, I'd gotten some really hard feedback straight to one of my master wounds is women being disappointed with me. And I'm sure it's something to do with having a single mom, being single and feeling like I'm never going to be able to make a relationship work or that there's something wrong with me. So a woman's disappointment just sent me spiraling to the whole question of, oh, I'm never going to be able to make this work. I'm inherently broken. I'm a fuck up. I'm a failure. All the thoughts. People fall in love with me and then they get to know me. My therapist just said, all right, well, you feel like spiraling right now. Let's do a cost-benefit analysis. What's the benefit to melting down and spiraling? And it was like, do you get to drop the weight? Yeah, you kind of get to drop the weight. You get to relax for a second in your misery. Do you get permission to be an unlovable piece of shit? Yeah, you totally get permission to be an unlovable piece of shit. What else do you get? And I said, you get a really shitty vacation, right? Because you get to just lie in bed and feel awful. But you also don't have to answer emails because I'm so miserable. And you don't have to do any work because you're so miserable. So it's like the worst possible vacation, but it is still a break. And it's still a vacation. It's a miserable vacation, but it's still a vacation. The second those words left my mouth, I thought, I'm not getting enough rest. Mm. Like, I am working so hard, and I would go home and have some downtime, but my downtime was not effective enough. Okay, I had to reassess what I was doing because I was not getting recovery to the point that 
I was willing to trigger a depressive meltdown that would probably be a week or two of feeling sorry for myself so I could rest and recover in the shittiest vacation one can have, which I know my fellow shitty vacation takers out there (laughs) know what that's like. There's a couple of things that really rang true for me. Isn't it true that we don't give ourselves the grace we need moment by moment, day by day, whatever that means, so that we need a crisis in order to say peace out, right? And yeah. How, how, at least you know this. Like, Sam, you're aware of this. You're working well, now, through it, this. Well, that, yeah. Right. In that moment, it felt like I am spiraling. I, and But the second those words came to it, it was like, no, you are unable to properly take a break. Yes. Like you are unable to plan a restorative trip and go do that. So you're getting mm-hmm. yanked out of, out of, I don't know if you've ever seen where they yeah. have to switch drivers because it's a 24 yes. hour race and they literally get yanked yes. out of the car to make the transition faster. It's like, why well, I, I am yanking myself out to take a shitty vacation because I, what it, maybe it's my macho-ness, maybe it's my attachment to being gritty and working mm-hmm. really hard, but I want to learn the skill of grit and the skill of hard work. And I want to learn how to do it effectively, which means also paying attention to the other end, which is the, why do I feel this need to take a shitty vacation to, to self-sabotage? Some of my favorite words right now are the R words, rest, restore, redeem. And that means we have to be intentional. You were talking about this disappointing hurtful situation with this woman and not at all to put it in the category of toxic positivity because that's one of my least favorite things like it's like look on the bright side look what you know cup half full no 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 but I do believe that that was some kind of a clarion call for you tell me more well it gave you an opportunity to work with Robert and to have him walk you through this process where you got to say holy shit I don't know how to give myself a break. I don't know how to go easy on myself or show me show myself grace. And maybe you wouldn't have come to that conclusion if that painful situation didn't happen. Not that we want the painful situation. Yeah. But it is how we wake up. And I do believe that waking up to ourselves is where we find the healing. Yeah. And it is always painful. So I have this thing right now where the idea of a healthy, together, successful, prosperous, joyful woman being interested in me makes me want to collapse into the floor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because, because? Because of unworthiness. So I have an opportunity to, to look at that. Yeah, you do. Yeah. And I would say maybe not just look at it because first you have to look at it, but to invite it. And how scary is that if you had this amazing, fabulous, healthy, joyful, could meet you toe to toe kind of a woman? That's pretty scary. Well, I'm trying to bargain up. You know, I'm trying to punch above my weight class. So uh, toe to toe. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. (sighs) But we started to also talk about um, how important it is to let those we love find their own dignity so that we're not pouring ourselves into somebody else, but allowing them to come into contact with their own resilience. And every time I rescued someone I deeply loved, I was depriving them of their wisdom. Yeah. I, on the other side of that, I deprive myself of the ability to receive much because I'm so self-reliant and I'm very much like, I don't want to rely on anyone because you'll all let me down. So I will make sure that there's water and snacks for me, that there's always an, ex- you know, an escape route, that there's always a plan B. And I'm good at planning all the contingencies so that no matter what, I'm taken care of. But what is being asked of me right now by the, the people in my life who are challenging me is to exist in a way where my needs are taken care of because people want to, you know, so to be a giver, to be somebody that's giving, that's bringing joy to the situation. I'm a joy kill, right? Like that's 
left to my own devices, I end up just getting way too serious, not allowing the experience to be both successful and joyous, you know, mm. but to exist in a way where there's room for people to say, hey, are you thirsty? Do you want a, do you want a glass of water? Because I'm creating that moment rather than taking care of all my needs. So there's kind of like this like, well, what if I didn't manage every single aspect of my life, but instead I tried to open up my view so I'm not just taking care of myself because I'm a somebody who wants to heal and somebody who wants to be safe and protected. And my idea for how I would do that is to basically build a castle around myself. And it's like, great. I can heal in here, it's kind of warm, I got water and food, and it's great. How, how can I build part of a structure that allows other people to attach to that structure so we can build something that's not so con constrictive mm. and that's more living and that's more about give and take because I'm missing so much by giving myself everything. I'm missing the opportunity to give to other people because I'm using up so much energy giving to myself and I'm missing the opportunity for people to give to me. When you were talking about the castle, I, I also thought about a, the moat that is usually, that goes around, right? Oh yeah, I gotta right? keep them out. Absolutely, absolutely. And moving to Montana allowed me to kind of move outside of that castle and to realize I don't know anybody here, not a soul. So unless I want to live a life of absolute solitary existence, which I don't because I'm all about connection, I've got to be willing to be really scared and humble and be the new kid on the block, which makes me all kinds of scared and anxious and uncomfortable. And I, too, am trying to learn to let people give to me, trustworthy people, people who are going to be safe and using my powers of discernment, Sam, to figure out who that is. Yeah. Right? I love that. Yeah. What is the thing you absolutely, like, this is going to be beautifully recorded. You're going to look great on video. What is the thing you <laughs> absolutely do not want to leave here without saying, without getting on the record? That we're all recovering from something and that the recovery process is so important to us loving ourselves and loving other people in healthy ways. And to put on your facilitator hat for a second, if your job right now was to help train the trainers and help everybody who's listening right now start facilitating more recovery in their worlds, how would you start? I'd encourage people to look in the mirror. I mean, seriously, we can't do this work and we can't bring people to doing the work unless we are doing the work. I mean, it's so important over and over again. We have to go deep and we have to dive underneath the waterline and we have to be humble and we have to ask for help. We can't bring people anywhere that we are not also willing to go. I'm a huge fan of the hero's journey, stepping out of our comfort zone, departing from the things that we know that give us solace and safety, even if they're not safe, right? Stepping out of our comfort zone and then taking the call to having this amazing journey that scares us and that brings us face to face with the very thing that we don't want to confront. Mm -hmm. And it's in that cave. I mean, Joseph Campbell talks about this. It's in that cave that we don't want to go into that we find our treasure. Yeah. Right? But we don't want to go into that cave. Have you ever heard, you can slay the dragon in its lair or you can wait till it comes for your village? <laughs> oh, I have never heard that. I forget I where I got it that. from. Yeah. Yes, we have to be able to fight those dragons. We really do. And then what do we do with that? Once we slay them, once we find the treasure in the cave, how do we share that with other people? And one of the reasons why I talk about what I talk about is it's very important for me to step out of the shadows. I mean, many times we're an anonymous people. I think that's really important in so many ways. And for me, I have to find a way to talk about this publicly so that other people are invited to the table of healing and so that people don't see me as somebody who has it all together, that I'm a hot mess. 
And in many ways, I'm really proud of that because in the hot mess, I find an honesty and a healing. It's needed these days because there's a lot of people who build their professional lives into a corner. And because they're the happy person or because they're the productivity person, because they're the, they can create these incredibly painful for everyone moments of lack of integrity, right? Painful for the people that meet them and experience their lack of integrity, painful for themselves as somebody who's not living what they're preaching. And so I've noticed that several times I, yeah, I've, I've had people who I really cared about deeply really get in a tight bind where, A, I can't support their work anymore because I'm going, you're miserable. You're miserable behind the scenes. And then when I see your Facebook or Instagram post, and then I call you based off of that, the person I meet on the phone is different than the person you were. And that's incredibly painful. So the idea that to create space for healthy relationships to have unhealthy moments and be able to talk about them, for healthy leaders to have embarrassing moments. I had a moment where I was talking to a leader and giving this leader feedback and saying, hey, I really love what you've done. Here's the feedback. I just could not get received. And it was so disappointing. Yeah, and I was like, you taught me so many of these skills that you're not able to see could be put into effect right now from your side of the table. Right, that's the talking head, right? The longest journey is from our head to our heart. I mean, we can we can talk a good game. And when I talk in, in public, I say to people, it's one of my goals right now to align my public persona, such as it is, with my private self. I mean, that doesn't mean sharing every gory detail, because I think that's in some ways too much. It's exposure porn in some ways. Like people just want it, like you can't take your eyes off of the, the train wreck. This integrity of aligning who we are in all facets of our life. So I'll talk about, you know, you're looking at the impact of addiction and abuse. People will be shocked about that. And I'm talking about this so that we step out of the shadows and invite people to be more real and raw in a discerning way, but real and raw. One of the things that happened for me at the guest house, which was an incredible gift, and I say this with tremendous humility because I have to remember what this is calling me into, is people would come up to me and say, I wish that my spouse was doing this, the work you're doing, or I wish my mother was doing the work you're doing. The fact that I was doing the work, Sam, doesn't make me a hero at all. What it makes me is open and willing and sick and tired of being sick and tired and willing to do whatever it takes. But when those people would say that to me, it gave me a sense of, I want to invite as many people as possible to do this work, to do the feedback that you're doing to people you really care about to be present, to learn what connection really means, day to day, moment by moment. What do you train in your leadership training? I'm trying to instill in them first and foremost to be emotionally and relationally honest with themselves. That true connection can't start with other people until we learn to self-connect. And how do we do that? And there's something very spiritual happens. I think our relationship with a spiritual presence deepens as we recover our true self, as we connect with our true self. But that takes an an inordinate amount of courage and humility to say, I want to learn everything possible about myself, which means I've got to get really honest, which means I have to say I've screwed up which means I have to be willing to move into doing things differently. I had a CEO call me the other day to say, I'm numb. This is what he said. I'm numb, I'm disconnected, and I'm absolutely bored. And this is the kind of a person who has a private jet, who from all outside appearances has it all together. And I want to invite, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or you're somebody in treatment or you're a CEO in a boardroom, I want to invite everybody into the world of recovery and to realize that we all have something to recover from. 
and there's a path forward. Mm. Yeah. What do you think makes a great leader? Transparency, honesty about who they are, realizing that they don't have all the answers. The things that people want in leaders are the very things that leaders have to show themselves first. So people want somebody who knows how to listen deeply, who doesn't have all the answers. But in order for a leader to show up listening deeply to others, they have to be okay first with silence and with listening to themselves and asking themselves questions and being empathetic toward themselves. So all the things that we want to give to people, we have to first give to ourselves. I have a um, desire in terms of leadership, which is nothing against the promoters of the world and the extroverts of the world, but I really want to inspire the people who are deeply introspective and nervous and worried. And I know why you're nervous and worried, because you're able to process the world on such a high fidelity way. Like most of the time when I meet deeply anxious, worried people, um, they're incredibly intelligent. Otherwise, they couldn't possibly process how everything could go wrong, right? Like they're able to extrapolate, like to take apart the world and to see where all the problems are. And that's not necessarily the healthiest way to live, but they have the horsepower to do it. I want to start seeing the people who don't want to be leaders stepping into leaders because I think they actually are the most qualified. Mm. I think the fact that they are self-conscious and self-aware to the point where they go, no, I think somebody else could probably do a better job. No, I think that's the person that we desperately need. Like we really, all the people who are drawn to go record a great talk on TikTok (laughs) aren't necessarily the people that we need to hear from. We, We need to hear from the people who have been thinking about it and who have ideas but who are terrified to share them because they understand the weight of those ideas. They understand that there's something real there and a real ask. If everybody likes what you're saying, something's wrong there because the best feedback you can get is generally risky, right? The the best feedback I give to friends is when I go, they may not like me for this. They may not even want to be friends with me after I say this. But out of love for who I think they could be, out of love for who I think they are deep down, I'm going to risk telling them. And not everybody gives you that opportunity. Not everybody creates a safe place for you to take that risk and to tell them the way you're coming off is is like this. But when you get the opportunity to take that risk, there's an opportunity for the person that you told and there's a clearing with your own self. There's a clearing that I need to do because... I've noticed like just in this talk where I'm going, oh, there's a lot of people texting me. A lot of people want to connect who I love, all these people. But I I feel myself texting back kind of through my teeth like, oh, hey, good. But I'm I'm texting too much. My phone is taking taking me out of the life I've built and worked so hard to love and enjoy. And I need to find some kind of balance for the people who make that life so enjoyable to make the phone work for me again. Mm. You know, that kind of feedback that you give people is such an act of honor and courage. And I think until we're willing to risk losing somebody that we really can't show up with love. Like we have to be willing to be completely honest, not in a way that's like, let me tell you everything that's wrong with you. But we come to that, Sam, from a position of love. Like, I love you so much that I'm not willing to co-participate in this anymore. Yeah. Right? I'm not, I'm just not willing. So I'm going to put out my stuff on the table and ask you to just sit with that. That is powerful. And when people do that, to me, and Lord knows there have been people who have done that to me. I'm so grateful that they have because it's really allowed me to reflect on, and my son is my greatest teacher. When he calls me out on my stuff, it is painful and redemptive right? because he bears witness to me like no one else can. Yeah. 
Right? And that's, that's beautiful that you've created about. a relationship where you can both give each other that feedback. It's it, it very rare. It ain't easy. Yeah, I don't love feedback. You know, <laughs> right. If you were to tell me, hey, Sam, go write your past five girlfriends and ask them to give you honest feedback about what kind of boyfriend you were, that idea does not excite me. What would come from that would be some form of reality, not the truth, but some form of someone's experience of me. Yes. The question is, is do I want to exist in a way that allows people to give me honest feedback and for me to take that honest feedback so I can really play in the real world? Or do I want to play in some construct that I've made for myself? Right. Some, some fake reality where yeah. I'm this and I'm that and I'm such a force of nature and this and that. It's like... Yeah, sometimes, Sam, but like not always. Like sometimes you're a fucking asshole. <laughs> sometimes you're way too rigid. Sometimes you don't leave room for other people. That's my commitment that I'm voicing here right now on the record is that I want to start creating a existence that's based on real feedback. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all step away from those curated images of ourselves, right? And I think... The fact that so many of us worship at the altar of social media is just absolutely soul-sucking right now. Yeah. And we are in a world of hurt because of it. And I think it's fueling this epidemic of the real epidemic, which is disconnection and shame and comparison. So, yeah, sign me up for that feedback. I'll, I'll go there every day with you. Okay. <laughs> I know how I'm going to end the show. Okay. But because I didn't finish your book, what else, what am I missing? What else is your zone of genius? That thing that My zone of genius that, that that concept really makes me nervous. Yeah, that thing that you do that you were just gifted at. Hmm. I throw amazing get-togethers. Tell me about it <laughs> for connection. For connection, a couple of weeks ago, I had my first dinner party ever in Montana. And I had asked a woman whose birthday it was, who had befriended me, if I could throw her a birthday party. And I do these kinds of get-togethers really well. Like, it's not about being fancy. It's not about having the latest and the greatest. It's about creating a space for people to come together and just really be real. So I remember before everybody came that night, I remember saying to God, just be here in this space. However it is that people need for you to show up. And they probably won't even know you're here, but they'll know you're here. So just please be here. And I had feedback from people all night long that it was probably one of the best get-togethers they had been at in a long time. The food, the sense of connection, and it was nothing fancy, Sam. It was just good comfort food. It was creating a space for people to come and feel seen and heard. There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of really honest conversation. I could hear some people pouring their hearts out to other people. It was a really safe space. So I believe in three things in terms of the power of the table. I believe that the power of the table is honestly about communion. It's how we do communion every day in our lives. And coming from an Episcopal background, communion's kind of sort of important, right? But it's not so much what happens only in church. It's how can we take that out into the world? And then there's liturgy. Again, Episcopalian's pretty important for us. And that means our stories. What you and I are doing right now here, Sam, is sacred. We're telling our stories. I could listen to you all day. Honestly, I could. And I'm so glad that you create this space. And then there's just what we do in the power of communion and in the power of liturgy is that we experience redemption. We tell each other stories and we're like, oh my goodness, you too. I thought I was the only one, right? So there's something very redemptive about that. And when I create get-togethers and step out of the way, so it's not this curated Martha Stewart kind of picture-perfect thing, those three things happen. Communion, liturgy, and redemption. Amazing. I love that. Yeah. So I like to end the show the same way every time. Okay. But with a little twist. If I could hand you a phone right now, and on the other end of the phone was you three years from now, and they have just 
benefited from who you're about to be for the next three years. And they're calling you to tell you, hey, this is my hope for you. This is how I hope you move through the world. This is what's really important to pay attention to for the next three years. What do you think they would say? Tearing up thinking about that. A family member who benefited from the work I did with them and provided for them the space I provided for them. And they would say, our lives have inextricably changed as a result of the work we did. And please, Karen, keep doing it because God is working through you. So I would hope that I could just stay really humble and let it not be about me, but about the healing and about God working in this world and taking as many of us as possible into recovery and connection. Thank you, Karen. You have the book, The Connected Leader. What are other ways to connect with you and to stay in touch with you and the work that you're doing? People can find me on coachforfamilies.com. And that's where my recovery work is. And that's where I'm going to ask people to find me. There's a cool complimentary workbook that we have about connection that people can download and learn all that they need to learn. So, yeah, I hate promoting myself. I know. So, I'm <laughs> gonna, I'll make really it. Hard. <laughs> really hard. Really <laughs> hard. It's all right. I am also terrible at promoting myself. Uh, it's uh, We get to learn how to do it. Yeah, I guess so. Thank you so much for yes, coming here. Sam. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. My name is Sam Lamont. This is produced with a handful of people working to make this show possible. If you'd like to support us, go to patreon.com slash howtohuman and join our community. This podcast is just the start of the conversation. The real stuff happens in group, in community. We have a meeting that happens every Monday night. Sometimes we're reading books in our book club. Sometimes we're working on personal projects in our study halls. We'd love to have you. The second best thing you could do is to share this episode. That's it for today. This podcast was filmed and produced at Square One Studio in San Anselmo, California. Have a great day.